Welcome everyone to the Middle East Center's Friday seminar series. My name is Toby Matteson. I'm a senior research fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's lecture by Dr. Uh, Abbas Kazim. Um, Abbas um, leads the Atlantic Council Iraq Initiative. He is an Iraq expert and author of um, a very good book, uh, Reclaiming Iraq, the 1920 Revolution and the Founding of the Modern State on the, well, 1920 uh, Uprising Revolution. Um, and he earned a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from the University of California. Um, and the subject of his dissertation was Shia political theology in Baghdad in the 11th century. Most recently, he was a senior fellow at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He was also formerly an assistant professor of Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey and a visiting assistant professor at Stanford University. He previously held a senior government affairs position at the Iraqi Embassy in Washington, and his publications include Governments in the Middle East and North Africa, and uh, a study based on uh, the Ba'ath Party archives, which is entitled The Hausa Under Siege, um, and uh, from which project I gather um, many more things are forthcoming. Um, uh, Dr. Abbas Kadim will be speaking today about um, the Shi Marjaiya and whether it can depart from traditional limits and unlock the future potential. So without further ado, please um, join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Abbas and um, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be here. It's wonderful uh, to see Toby again, a good friend of mine, and in this great place. And uh, speaking about the Hausa, especially nowadays the Hausa of uh, Najaf, which is the mother of the um, other seminaries, in today's world that we are speaking about an institution that is very fitting to talk about it at Oxford. They were founded about the same time. Uh, the House of Najaf was uh, founded about 35 years before Oxford, so they are twins almost in, in the time span they are in. And these are uh, great institutions. The Hausa uh, is not only a seminary for studies, but it is also a uh, source of leadership for the Shia worldwide. And also it is a source of um, spiritual guidance. It is the place, in, in the words of a, uh, one scholar, the, uh, the Hausa is what makes the Shia Shia. And, and that is a, an important uh, role that it plays within the Muslim world and also within the Shia uh, community worldwide. Uh, my uh, talk today is uh, meant to be the first in four talks uh, about a, a, a one project uh, that is looking in a critical way at the Shia community uh, at large uh, on, on several levels. It is time for us to assess ourselves as Shia uh, and look at where we are going, where we are, where we came from, uh, and uh, address the various aspects of the uh, Shia uh, affairs. And uh, this is different than previous attempts. I'm not the first person 
to practice this kind of critique on Shiism. The difference here is that uh, it is not happening the same way that uh, we normally see it, either critique from outside Shiism, where people look at it mostly in a polemical way uh, to uh, criticize the Shia uh, uh, with the preconceived opinion that they are not within the norm of what one, um, especially the, the person who makes the critique, sees the world. Uh, there is also another uh, way of doing it, sometimes from within, but by people who either leave their Shia belief or uh, become disenchanted with it. And then they begin sort of cleansing the, their own minds and themselves from uh, what they were uh, in paving the way for themselves to go on a different path. Or sometimes people who do it still within Shiaism, but they lack maybe sort of the skills, the methodologies, or they go after the wrong aspects of it. You know, there are good Shia scholars who, when criticizing the Quran or the, the imams or the imamate or the theology itself, or the, even the basic pillars of Shiaism. My interest here is not that it is really to go back to the roots uh, as I say in my one of the proposals I wrote for the, the, the project, is that it is not an attack on Shiism, but it is an attack on its behalf. Try to sort of go back and see where uh, was the, the point where we diverted from where we were supposed to, to be. In order not to enter into a dangerous endeavor like this and get misunderstood, I thought instead of just making a book or or a big chunk of the project, and then without showing what the framework of the entire project, that would risk being misunderstood or, or uh, lacking the ability to present what I'm looking for. So I decided to do it in four lectures, each one of them on one aspect of the project. So this lecture is about the marja'iya, the religious authority of, uh, of the Shia, the scholarly body of work and the people who are carrying it out and the entrepreneurs of the scholarship of Shiism. Then another talk is on the political leadership of the Shia, be it uh, the uh, state system in Iran, like you know, the Wilayat al-Faqih, which is tried to sort of politicize the uh, religious seminary and fit into the political theology of Shiism and turn it into a political leadership, or the parties that are operating on the periphery of the Shia political theology. The, the structure in Shiism is that the, uh, the layperson would follow the marja, and the marja is understood to be the link between the layman or the layperson with the imam, uh, the infallible imam in the Shia thought. Uh, so there is the political party that comes from out of that structure and tries to insert in itself in a certain place, and it is always coming sort of an imposed uh, entity that doesn't find the exact fit where it could really sit there and function. And that has been the challenge for political Shia leadership, is how to create legitimacy for their own operation um, within that well-structured a line of authority that goes from God through the prophet, through the imam, through the marja, uh, all the way to the lay person. There is no room or structural place for a political party. That's why political parties always struggled uh, and uh, they gasp for legitimacy all the time. The third part of the, uh, that would be a talk on the Shia community, 
leaving the leadership and going into the Shia. We have about 400 million Shia worldwide, give or take. Nobody really counted heads uh, because it's of the scattering uh, of the Shia all over the world and also the uh, geopolitical, geo-religious, uh, sectarian issues in the world. It's very hard to really make that statistic. But a number about that is if you were to think about the Shia being less than a quarter of the Muslim world or, or Muslim population. About 300 million of these people, um, um, they do not have anything to do with the heartland of Shiism, Iraq or Iran. What is the situation of these people? How do they function in the outside world, having been uh, citizens of certain countries, yet their allegiance or at least their political authority is uh, derived from countries that are almost always at odds with their own national countries. Uh, to just probably put it closer to something we all know, uh, a, a Shia today in Bahrain or in Saudi Arabia or in a country like that is almost like a Florentine citizen in the 1500s. Uh, you know, Italy was uh, uh, five city-states and Rome is where the seat of the, the Catholic Church, but it is a state and not necessarily an ally of Florence. So as a Florentine citizen, you are always trying to struggle to prove your authentic citizenship and loyalty to Florence and reconcile that with your Catholic affiliation with, the, with, with, with Rome. And how does the Medici see you where you are, your body is in his uh, polity and your heart is somewhere else or your mind even? This is exactly what the problem of a Bahraini Shia or a, or a Saudi Shia today. The, the, the state wants him to be heart and mind as part of their, their polity, and they cannot wrap their heads around the fact that this person takes his instruction from a merger who resides in Najaf or worse, in Qum for the Saudis, because they can probably take with a grain of salt some kind of relation with Najaf. But with Qum, uh, given the relation between Iraq and Iran right now, I mean Iran and, and Saudi, Iran and Bahrain, it's always a problem. So you are trying to struggle to establish your authentic, authentic um, uh, citizenship, and also you find always your your uh, religious identity standing in the way. Uh, to that struggle, what does Najaf and Qum do for these people? It is exactly what Rome told these the, the Florentines: just bear suffering. Uh, that's your destiny. What can we do? There is nothing we can do for you uh, other than just be patient and bear suffering. Uh, is that a, a situation that, that can or we have to live with or is there something that we have to do with uh, about it? That's a very important question that we have to ask. Nobody is asking about it. And again, it is not about a small minority of the Shia. We talk about three-fourths of the Shia who are uh, in, in this precarious situation. Some of them are in better situations than others, but all of them are having that sort of periphery struggle. Then the last part of this this project is talking about the future. Where are we going as Shia? Is, is anybody asking about where the Shia will be in 50 years from now? I mean, we dread this question of what will happen after Sistani, which I will come to talk about, uh, which is Again, um, may God grant him a long life, but that's he's 87 now. So, but, but in 50 years, in 100 years, is anybody asking? Now, in a place like Iraq, more than 40% of the population is under the age of 14. 
when we talk about 50 years from now, we talk about the people who are living today. That's their future. Where are they going to be when some of them are turning 50 or 60 years old? That is important. So in all of that, uh, I'm going to be asking those hard questions on every aspect of this and trying to struggle and wrestle with these these questions and, and the answers that might come and uh, where, where we will take this. So let's talk about the marja'iyya here and this for the purpose of this, but I just wanted to give you some kind of the overall framework of what I'm looking at in those four aspects of the critique of the uh, the Shia uh, condition, if you were, or the Shia human condition of these days. Now, the, the marja'iyya itself is a, uh, in, in Shiaism, it's a different kind of a religious authority that what we know in the West, especially. Now, there is, there is a very loose sense of authority that does not really constitute a, an institutional relation. And the question here in the, in the uh, lecture uh, title uh, talks about this idea. Can we find a a constitution, an institutional, sorry, structure for the for the marja'iyya, uh, in order to make it function as a leadership. In a way, the Shia political theology uh, and and or, or Shia theology in general looks at the sense of authority in a very structured way. Authority is held by God, is the highest sovereign. And that uh, authority is uh, vested in the prophet. And then the prophet uh, vests the authority in the imam after the death of the prophet. And that gets us from the year 632 when the prophet died all the way to uh, 874. It's about 250 uh, years or so. And from that point, the 12th imam is believed by the Shia to have disappeared. So the power and the authority of the, uh, of the imam moved uh, or devolved on the scholars of religion, the ulama. The difference here is that from the prophet to the imams for that 250 years, all of the leaders are considered by the Shia to be infallible. And they have a, an, a full or a, a maximum scope of authority over the believers. Once the, uh, the the authority devolved on the on the scholars of religion. The scholars of religion are admittedly fallible, so they are human beings like the rest of the others, in all of their intellectual and spiritual capacities. The only difference between them is uh, a measure of sense, as of uh, sorry, a measure of, of piety and, and, and knowledge. And these are the only two that are still the criteria of selecting the, uh, the marja, the person that a Shia is supposed to follow. Now, in the absence of the imam, uh, the, uh, the Shia are, within a short span of time, they develop this idea that there is an obligation for every lay person within the Shia community to pick a top scholar uh, to uh, follow him or emulate him. They call it taqlid. And he will have to follow that uh, person. When they follow him, he has to be alive at the time. And then they follow his instructions to the letter. And they don't even need to worry about what other scholars uh, of equal uh, learning uh, have of opinions. Once this person dies, 
there are two possibilities. One way is that you continue to follow him uh, because he was your uh, first chosen person. And then on any new question, you will follow the new most knowledgeable person. Uh, or you could switch completely to the next most, follow, most uh, knowledgeable person. And then you switch completely your allegiance. And you have to, again, pick someone who is still alive, who has the reputation of being the most knowledgeable person. That's how it works. Now, there is no institution that, or any procedure that will tell you who that person that everybody should pick or that you should pick. It is all from bottom up. And this is one of these issues. So it's your job, your assignment, your duty as a layperson to investigate and to ask questions until you discern who that most knowledgeable person in your lifetime that you will have to follow. That's how it works. And, and there is no campaign for it. He, he doesn't even know that you follow him. Uh, probably each one of them will, will know how many people follow him by the end of year when they see what kind of contributions, financial contributions, come to their uh, uh, deputies. Then you know how, who are the people that are followed by most people or by the most important finance generators in the community. But really, they, there is no, no uh, role or, or ledger which says who are the followers of this merger or the other merger. So it is all about uh, voluntary following and voluntary adherence to the, uh, to the merger. My interest is really more than historical sense, although I will be more than happy to talk about the, that in the questions and answers. But my interest more is that uh, looking at where, where are we going and more if I look at some history, I look at the very recent history, just to make the comparison. Until probably uh, 2003, well, if, if we were to look at the Marja'iyya, that is not political. 1979 was the time when the Marja'iyya and Qum in Iran ended up controlling the state. And that in my opinion, is a deviation, even though there was an attempt to link the project of Wilayat al-Faqih, the sovereignty or the guardianship of the, of the jurist in Iran, to the Shia political theology, trying to take that uh, leadership and that role of the, leader, uh, or of the political and religious authority and concoct out of it this notion of Wilayat al-Faqih as an attempt to avoid what I just earlier said, that because political parties are very hard to insert into the line of the process. But if the jurist himself practices politics, then uh, you are almost like uh, going through a, a natural uh, order of, of the hierarchy. Problem with it is that Shia political theology does not allow for what has been practiced in Wilayat al-Faqih in Iran or through Wilayat al-Faqih. Uh, what Wilayat al-Faqih did, in my own assessment, that could not really be considered a faithful application of Shia political theology, is that it gave the full scope of the authority that the Shia gave to the Imam and to the Prophet before him. Because he was infallible, they gave it to the fallible. Ayatollah Khomeini, in his teachings which he gave in Najaf, by the way, in 1973 and 74, 
about political leadership and the role of the jurist, the role of the jurist in, 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 polit- in politics. He said that it is not about who applies the laws. It is the fact that the laws have to be applied. Uh, these are the laws of God, not the laws of the person who applies them. And he gives this example. He says, if the prophet collects 20% of the dues of, of the extra money of a person, a believer, does it mean that the less excellent person, the imam, will collect 15%? And when, when it comes to Khomeini, the jurist, who is not infallible, would collect uh, 10%? No. The, God says you collect 20%. Same thing when it comes to punishment, when it comes to all of the other applications of laws. No matter who applies them, he has to apply them as they were originally. Now, this is a nice argument, but only when, you know, on, on certain clear issues. But if when you go to the all of the, 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 the stratifications of, of governance and, and what decisions these people make, it doesn't become that clear. Uh, there will be a big difference between the way a fallible person applies the law and an infallible person applies the law. The Shia gave that full scope of authority to the infallible because they know that he will never abuse his power, he will never make a mistake, and he will never apply the laws in, in, apply the laws in, a, uh, in a corrupt way. These are all, if not in, in practice, at least in theory, they are possible on the fallible. Now, if you were to even look at it from another way, just look at the Iranian experience. A few days ago, they celebrated their 40th year of the Islamic Revolution. The Iranian experience does not really live up to the standards for which they accused the Shah of violating and they revolted against him. If the Shah ruled the same way they are ruling today in Iran, Okay, he would have triggered the same revolution they had against him. So, where are did did Wilayat al-Faqih really live to the to the creed or to the expectations of the uh, how how they are crafting it? Also, to add insult to injury, uh, when they uh, went about appointing the Faqih, they didn't appoint the Faqih according to the standard Shia criteria. The Shia from the 1400 years until today, they had one criteria for appointment of the head of the Muslim state by divine designation. He has to be the best of his peers, the superior. Yet, if you were to, I mean, by on his assessment, Ayatollah Khamenei at the time in 1989 said he was not qualified for it. Indeed, they changed the law to have him the supreme leader, while there were people who were much more qualified than him. If you go to the, to the Islamic theology, this is not the Shia standard of appointing a leader. It is the Mu'tazila, actually, standard of that, because the Mu'tazila believe in something they call Imamat al-Mavdul, the possibility or the permissibility of leadership by the inferior with the existence of the superior. All right, so long as the inferior would consult with the superior. Well, you know, if you have a superior, why don't you appoint him? So the Shia never agreed with that idea. Yet, in Wilayat al-Faqih, what we find is exactly the Mu'tazila version of the, the operation rather than the Shia ideal. So that's kind of 
how we began to look at the leadership in 79. But more importantly is what happened in 2003, where Iraq changed its regime and also uh, after the U.S. invasion. And with the change of regime, it unleashed a different kind of role for the seminary uh, in Najaf and the Hausa of Najaf, the Marja'iyah of Najaf. Now, Najaf has a, a certain difference from Qom first. It, is, it has been in operation since 1055, as I told you, close to a thousand years. It is also the place that was the cradle of Shiism uh, in, in Iraq. Kufa um, is the capital of Imam Ali, who was the first person or the, the icon, if you will, of Shiism, and that's his burial place. And it is the, uh, the place that has been associated with the historic classical Shia version of political of, of uh, religious authority that does not involve itself in politics. It has always been about spiritual authority and refrained from the, the political role. Sayyid Sistani or his mentor and teacher, um, Grand Ayatollah al-Khoui, they um, adopted a, a version of Shiism that was very compatible with the political realities of a country like Iraq. In the book that Toby just cited, uh, The Hausa Under Siege, I studied the Ba'ath Party, highly classified Ba'ath Party archive uh, regarding Sayyid Khoui, and so how he struggled to deal with the Ba'athist regime, where they reduced the Hausa, the entire seminary of Najaf, into two small schools in Najaf, no school in Karbala, the sister holy city next door, and the entire cadre of the Hausa, students and teachers, were less than 400 people. Now, and only 60 Iraqis of all of that, the rest were foreigners. Uh, and Iraqi could have, and most of these 60 people were the sons and family members of the top scholars of, of Najaf. That was the kind of situation that the Hausa was in during the Ba'athist regime before 2003. All of a sudden, the, uh, the, the doors were, were open, and then uh, Najaf found itself in a place where there was an absolute freedom. Today, if you go in Najaf, there is no book that is banned. There is no opinion that is not allowed. It is probably the freest spot on the face of earth. I live in the United States. There are books I cannot get. You go to the library, they have them in a vault. You go to Najaf, there isn't a book that people say you cannot sell this or you cannot bring that. There is no censorship at all. Now, how do you handle that change from your breath has been counted on you until 2003, and now you are having that? The Marja himself, who was under house arrest, he was, uh, he, he was having uh, his phone tapped by the state. You call him, it has to go through the... Uh, security police, and then they are listening. The two people in front of his house who are guards are from the government, and when he goes to give prayer, there are people who are planted everywhere. He cannot even open his mouth. To this idea that the Marja is being the turbaned king of Iraq, whether he wants it or not. The only reason why Iraq is not a Vulayat al-Faqih today is because Sayyid Sistani doesn't want to be the Wali al-Faqih. It's not because there are any other impediments for him. 
So how do you handle that power? That is the crux of the question that we are trying to ask. And what do you do after Sistani? Before 2003, it didn't matter who the marja was. It didn't matter whether the marja lives or dies for the population at large in or outside Iraq. The marja was no more than a person who could answer a question that could wait for a day, a week, a month, a year, or even if it doesn't get answered, the sky would not fall. Today, at least if you are to look at the, the, the case of Iraq, 38 million people are hang, hanging by a thread, and the end of the thread is a decision by that merger. Whether these people are Shia or not, uh, in, in uh, one of the uh, meetings with, with Sayyid Sistani, I had the honor of meeting him a couple of times, Basically, um, when he looks at assessing his own role, I, I met him in 2010, and I was doing a biography of him, uh, a short biography for an encyclopedia, and I had one of the questions I needed him to answer. I said, how would you like history to remember you? He didn't want to be remembered by his books, by his fatwas, by his scholarly role. He said, the most important thing that I want to be remembered with is when the mosque in Samarra was blown up, and people from the Shia leaders, basically tribal leaders and others, came to me and said, just say the word, no Sunni will be alive. And he said, I sensed the disaster that was coming, so I gathered all of the other three grand ayatollahs and Najaf, and we issued a joint fatwa telling people not to retaliate against anyone. We can rebuild the mosque, just don't kill anybody and don't shed blood over it. So he is the merger of the Shia, yes. But based on how he thinks, if we had someone other than Sistani, let's say, who was an extremist, and he would say, yeah, go and show these people what the consequences are of making such an atrocity, that would have been a huge issue. So it is important for that. Before 2003, nobody would even come to someone like Sistani and say, what should we do? Something happens... It was the state that was taking care of these issues. Now, the stakes are much higher today. And if you go beyond Iraq, there are also ramifications. Now, my issue here is this. What do we do if we don't have Sistani? What scenarios do we have? That is a question that people don't... I mean, they ask all the time, but there is nothing that is being done to prepare ourselves for the departure of Sistani. The Marja'iyah nowadays is being a point of interest or an, an, an issue that is interests people everywhere. In Washington, wherever I go, among in, uh, official or unofficial audiences, even if I speak about Iraq's agriculture, they will ask about Sistani and what happens at this end. How, what is the role of the Marja'iyah? Now, the Marja'iyah as a place... As, a, as, as an entity in Najaf, what it is, all of this, this huge concept and what is this huge image and myth, and I say that carefully, is basically is a shell with an 87-year-old man inside of it. If he dies, we will end up with a shell. And I want, I posed, just to give you a moment, there isn't anything around the marja and the marja'iyah that can be anything like an institution. 
Once the marja dies, everything gets scrambled and we have to start over. As I said, because there isn't, there is no institution, there is no succession line, there are no written rules of what happens after he dies. There, are, there is no leadership or hierarchy that you could know. This is number one, this is number two. There isn't any white smoke that will come out to tell us who will be the next person. It is completely out of the... And, and also, when you look at who are the people who are around the marja, you will see uh, an entourage and gatekeepers and names after names after names, and you don't know. You have Even some people from the city cannot navigate through those uh, those those alleys to get all the way to the to the marja and all of those gatekeepers who nobody really knows how they get into these positions and how they get to block certain roads and how they get to open other other roads and doors etc and that is a problem you go to any institution in in, in the west religious institution. Yes, they do always religious institutions have their own mysteries around them, but there is a uh, some sense of, of structure. When I go to meet Cardinal World in, in the old days when he was in Washington, I go and I know there is the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and I just look at them, and these are PhDs and people who are technocrats and in various roles who are advising the church. If I go to Najaf today, who are the people that are advising the merger on political science, on international relations, on economics, on sociology, on the issues that are facing the Shia throughout the world? Who are these people? And are there people like that? My answer is no, because I haven't met them, and I'm a native of that town. All right? So we need to have these people in order to talk about an institution. That's why when the marja dies, we have to be for a moment sort of in a vacuum and waiting for the next person. As I said, for the past 1,400 years, it did not matter. This is the first time with Sayyid Sistani. It matters a lot. Because we are not replacing a merger for another, we are replacing a political leader with an ultimate authority. Even though he doesn't want to be involved in politics, politics involves itself in his enterprise. So that is an important issue. Sistani will leave a huge vacuum. When Sayyid Khoui died, he was... Uh, basically one of the most important Shia scholars in the past 200 years. When it comes to scholarship, role, authority in the community, he lived a long life, so he had ample time to make that authority felt and sensed. On scholarship, he was the only scholar in the recent history of the the Hawza, since we had those customs made, who was the what was called Za'im al-Hawza al-Almiyyah, the chief uh, scholar of, of, the, of the seminary, while the marja was still alive. Normally, the marja is the chief scholar of the Hawza. With Khoui, Sayyid Hakim was the marja, and he was the chief scholar in the seminary. He was that important theologically and jurisprudentially and in the intellectual level. When he died, he left a big vacuum, but that vacuum was only in the seminary. It didn't make any kind of sense of loss at the community. 
because his role was just in the seminary. Iraqi life, people woke up in the morning and there was no change whatsoever after his death when it came to their daily life at the political and social level because the regime made sure that he had no role outside the seminary. Today, Sayyid Sistani has a role in every aspect of Iraqi life and he has a role also in all of the Shia communities you would be amazed how many people in Shia communities in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia as well who are being given instructions on how to handle their affairs inside their own communities. Otherwise, you know, we'd see a completely different system in, in, those, in those communities. So that huge importance, that rise of the Shia, what, what Wali Nasser called Shia revival, it's not empowerment more in many cases, but really a revival, that all revolves around Sistani. The next person who, are go- who is going to have that position after him, until Sistani, nobody wanted to be the marja because it meant that you will be in a cutthroat dictatorship like Saddam Hussein, having there risking you are going to be killed or put in house arrest or bothered in all kinds of ways. Now, as I said, the new Marja will be the turbaned king of Iraq. So in the old days when the people who, I mean, first of all, you had two, three people because nobody really wanted to be the the Marja. And it was all revolving around truly qualified people. Now there are about 40 people only in the town of Najaf. About 38% of them are not qualified. And all of those, some of them have militias, those And each one of them is putting himself forward as the successor of Sistani. That is big. So when a person comes in and there is this huge vacuum, you will have two possibilities. Either this vacuum remains, and when there is a big decision like what happened on June 14, uh, sorry, June 10, 2014, ISIS takes Mosul and it took someone like Sistani to make, to give that fatwa and save a country you would have somebody who could not know how to handle a disaster like that. Or you have someone who wants to fill that vacuum that Sistani himself took 15 years so far to to make, and then he will be like LaFontaine's frog, just gasping air until he explodes and takes as many people as uh, he can with him into a disaster. And that is another problem, because as, as you look around it, there is nobody there uh, that really can fill Sistani's position. So how is that going to be a concern for, for the Shia? Do people talk about it? They are not really talking about it as much as we like to see. There isn't any change in the way that the uh, Marja'iyya is making to its own structure, to its own institutionalization, to meet those differences, to bring the marja'iyah into the 21st century, but also to bring the marja'iyah into the the post-2003 realities of Najaf and Iraq and beyond. Because, as I said, to go with the same processes that used to be in place when it didn't matter how the marja'iyah organized itself, to a place where now it is willy-nilly, a, uh, an institution that leads the politics, leads the state, leads the society. Uh, there becomes an obligation uh, that 
the Marja'iyah would reinvent itself to meet that drastic change that happened between 2003 and today and where it is going also in the future because I assume that as we continue, the, the, the role will even increase more and more and, and also to in, intercept a deviation that will take the Marja'iyah into some split that, that probably will, will put the entire Shia community at peril. There are also things that we have to consider when it comes to the Marja'iyah itself is the structure of the, uh, this relation between the Marja'iyah and, and the communities far away from Najaf. Someone like Sayyid Sistani, he has followers in about 133 countries. He has deputies in all of these countries. And those deputies get, you know, collect money and they also have relations um, in, in a chain until it gets all the way to Najaf. Most of this money is cash transactions. Uh, they are uh, nobody really knows how uh, those uh, this money kind of uh, is being used. Note that from from an integrity point of view, but also from prudence of using that money, it is clearly a, an important system that needs to be put in place where you could put that money to good use for projects that are. Uh, that are going to make a difference in the in the uh, community's life. A lot of people don't even give dues because they don't know where that money is coming. When you ask, okay, well, how are you going to deal with this money? One of the things that I got from somebody who is close to the to the Marjaya, uh in some several years ago, he said, you know, we don't want to put these money in, in in the banks because if for some reason the banks. Uh, the bank accounts get frozen, we lose all of that money and we lose all of our ability to act. So they keep that money in, in, in that kind of fluid way. Uh, and because of it, uh, again, you are, there is no way you can ensure accountability. There is no way you can track where that money is going. And there is no way you can really make sure that the projects that are being done they are being done to the maximum ability of, of what, what an institution like this is happening. Transparency is very important uh, because this is how uh, normally institutions like that and the relation with the people uh, have, to be, uh, have to be put in place. And that is a problem, uh, in fact. The other problem, again, is this, this idea of the relation between the merger and those who represent him. It is not really when you see somebody, let's say, in the United States or here in, in the UK or in any other country in the world, that he is, for example, collecting uh, dues and representing the merger. It doesn't mean that everything he does uh, is, is basically uh, the action of the merger. It is, it is not really a representative, again, because of no institution. So each one of those represents himself with a license from the merger. All what he gets is a scrap of paper saying this person, as far as we know, he's a good person and you can give him your dues and he is given a license to spend portion of it at his own discretion and then whatever is left over, he will send it either to, to Najaf or give it to another location. Depends on how they agreed on this. But in fact, whatever he does, it does not mean that his action is the action of the merger. Whether it's the merger as Sayyid Sistani or another person, here I'm talking about the merger in general. That is a problem because people who are going to a, or, or the people who, who are going to the, this person, whether asking him a question or giving him their money 
or asking for any kind of business to be done with the marja'iyah. They are under the impression that going to him is like going to the marja. In fact, it's not. Uh, and that's why we see men, in many cases people who are very loosely attached and they collect money in the name. And some of them, in fact, they collect the money and they are not licensed by the marja. Uh, because it is the nature of, of the relation is that people, you know, they are either shy or they, are, they don't uh, see it proper to go and say, show me the paper that says you are authorized. And, and it's, it's kind of be a taboo to ask for that. So, but if, if you have this kind of structure that is well done, that you could go in an independent, be it electronic or being in any way a publication, so you could tell this person belongs and this person doesn't belong. We don't have that. Uh, they are um, against that level of structure because until now they, they, they are following a slogan that was made in the 1940s, and, and they say the, dis, the order of the, the marja'iyah is in the disorder of it. So it's order and disorder, and disorder. That level of disorder that they only understand is, is somehow a point of strength rather than the order where everybody can look at it from outside and see it very well clarified and understood. So what we have here, just to, to, to conclude, is that it is an important institution. Uh, there is no way you can go around it or discard it in the life and, and its role even it's much more now than than before it used to be a, uh, a an institution or a, a an entity that was impossible to go around spiritually now it is impossible to get to go around spiritually and politically but on the other hand it does not have the elements uh, of meeting the challenges of its current order. It is still being operating on the classical role that was put in place when the marja'iyah had lower stakes in operation and in existence. Now, with all of this potential, you know, for the first time in the history of the marja'iyah, we have a marja who would send a letter to the UN Security Council and they would change the language of a resolution at the, uh, the, the, the UN Security Council. Almost, say, Sistan almost had a veto, if you will, on a UN resolution. It happened twice. With that power, how are you going to utilize it to un unlock the human or the, the potential of uh, the human potential for the Shia and also the potential of power for a, an institution like this to make it a, a force for good? That is missing until now, or it's not figured out. Okay? Because the moment, as I said, uh, Sistani is long, no longer with us. It is guaranteed that everything we have now is going to fall apart, and it's all going to be hinging on who the next person is to put a completely different order. It could be better, and it could be worse, and it could be the same, and nobody can guarantee or even predict. That is a very dangerous thought to, to have it. The stakes have been low, now the stakes are very high, and the, op the operation of, of low stakes could not be carried along to uh, operate the, 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 the high stakes that we have right now. That is where I think uh, people have to, to, to put their attention. Now, I understand when we talk about the Hausa, there are cases 
where or there are there are there is a rationale for not putting a structure because the essence of the Shia uh, authority is that it has to be voluntarily followed by the by the lay people, and it is independent of politics and it is not structured to give people the freedom of conscience to follow whoever they want. But on the other hand, this is not a, a written rule and it is not an overarching uh, concern. In fact, it, is, it was like that because the stakes were low. Now with the high stakes, this cannot be a tenable uh, argument that we continue. Yes, the merger cannot appoint his successor, but at least he can have a uh, he can make a, a, a restructure of the of the institution to ensure continuity, and that is the key word here. If you don't have continuity, you cannot really handle the um, challenges and also the opportunities that are going to be facing the Shia in the rest of the 21st century. Let me stop here, and maybe we can explore some of these in, in the questions and answers. Thank you.